Understanding God is a lot like talking to our kids about the birds and the bees. If it doesn't make us just a little uncomfortable, we might not be doing it right. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, I want us to think biblically about whether or not we can understand God or if we even should understand God. And when it comes to that question of can or should we understand God, we all, I think, need to admit that we like to understand God. For most of us, we like to have those answers where whenever there's something about God we don't understand or whenever somebody asks us something about God, we have this nice packaged answer that we can just give them or that we can repeat to ourselves and we can feel like, yeah, I, you know, I'm a good Christian. I really love God because I really fully understand him and I can explain all this stuff easily about him. And so a lot of us really don't actually feel very uncomfortable about things about God. It's not just a matter of there are some things we can know and some things we can't, but we sit there and we feel like we have a handle or an understanding on everything about him. Now, why I want to talk about this and why I want us to get past that level of comfort is that while it's nice to have a God that we know and understand, it's it feels good, it feels comfortable, it feels more real, or maybe even more safe to worship a God that we don't struggle with, that we don't have questions about, or even that we don't have doubts about. The problem comes in that when it comes to having a knowable God, we actually have a long human history of creating gods that we can know and understand. And we see this a lot with just generally pagan cultures. You have people who will worship animals or spirits. Uh, A lot of gods that we see throughout history are actually humanoid in form. You know, gods like Ra or Horus have you know human bodies, but a bird's head. Greek gods were basically human form completely. But whatever form these gods take, it's kind of irrelevant because they all are going to share something very similar with one another. All the people who worship them and create these gods, there's a common theme that we see, and that is that these gods are very much like us. They think like the people of that period would think. They have very similar behaviors. They have similar motivations as human beings. They're the things that they desire, whether it's worship, whether it's peace, whether it's war, whatever it is. It's things that we understand and can relate to. And when we see these gods, they are very two-dimensional. And by that, I mean that they tend to have one thing that they do and they do it well. Take the Hindu goddess Kali. She is primarily going to feature in stories where there is sexuality or violence or death. The Greek god Zeus. You're going to see him always be brave in his early life when he is uh, you know, defeating his father Kronos. You're going to see him be very easily angered by his worshippers or by the shenanigans that the other gods get up to. Or... Most primarily, you'll see him be ridiculously adulterous. He will trick women into sleeping with him. He will you know, just commit very disgusting acts. But looking to him as a man, that is an a, a ideal thing. It's this guy who can literally get any woman he wants. Um, you know, if we you know, go to maybe lesser known gods, we've got Quetzalcoatl from the Mesoamerican mythologies. And he is, you know... 
um, very fatherly. Usually he taught people things like agriculture and, and things like that. And so all these gods, whatever God you're looking at, whatever spirit, whatever, you know, animal thing, whatever God that we are looking at, they are usually going to do one of two things. Either they're going to fulfill some fantasy that people of that time have. They will be like us, but us if we had more power, if we could do these things. You know, the example of Zeus and his ability to have any woman he wanted was a very favorable thing then, and really it's a very favorable thing now in terms of how we think about, especially as men, how we think about what makes a good man or what would I do if I had power. Uh, We will also see that these two-dimensional gods are going to basically just be a means to an end. They will have something that they very much specialize in, and if we want that thing, we go to that god. So you have gods of agriculture, gods of the harvest, gods of wine, gods of death, gods of life, of wealth. You had uh, gods that you would worship if you were a messenger or if you sailed a ship. Whatever it was, there would always be a god to cater to whatever you were doing in your life. And that is really the only time that you would go see them is if you wanted to get something from them that they specialized in. Now, Why are we talking about all that? Well, because these gods that we create are very different from the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not like us. He's not like any of these gods. Uh, Look what it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? So the God that we worship is not like anything else in the universe. He's not like us. He's not an improved version of us. He's not us if we had unlimited power and knowledge because we would still just be human beings with power and knowledge. God is not just an improved human. He is like nothing in all of his creation because everything is dependent on him and he is dependent on nothing. Whereas as human beings, we tend to have certain character traits that are stronger And by necessity, we have other traits that are then weaker. With these gods that we see created by people, we have them basically only feature certain traits. They are very flat. They are very, like I said, two-dimensional in the fact that you know what you're getting when you get them. You know exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to react and what kind of stories they're going to be featured in. But God's not like that. God is equal and perfect in all of his attributes. He is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly wrathful and and perfectly giving out justice for sin. He is filled with absolute and perfect mercy, but he's also perfectly judgmental in the fact that he will judge sin. He judges us for the sin that we have done. And he, he judged our sin on Jesus Christ. For those of us who are in Christ and have had our sins paid for, God perfectly gave out judgment for our sin on his son. We know that God is all-powerful, and so we would expect a God who is all-powerful to just do all the things, right? Because if we were all-powerful, boy, we could just do so much good. We would have so much to do. But we see that God, in his perfection, despite being all-powerful, he uses flawed human beings for his purposes. And so this is just a small snippet of a reality of God that is difficult for us to understand. It's hard for us to rationalize in our mind. 
But the problem comes in that we want to understand this God. We want to know everything we can about this person that we love and we worship and we devote our lives to. And that is, you know, that problem is compounded in the fact of where we live today, because today in this day and age, we like to have a reason behind things. We are very reason focused. Even people who are driven by their emotions like to do things with a purpose. We are also very evidence-based. We, you know, between our access to um, the internet, uh, how far science and understanding and things like that have come along, we want proof for everything. And we know that if something exists, that it can be known, it can be studied, it can be analyzed, and we can write down everything we know about it. Um, Also, just in the day and age of Google itself, we know that if there's something we want to know, someone out there is willing to give us the answer. And so we don't understand how in this world that we live in, there can be things that are knowable, but that we can't possibly know because we are comforted by the fact that whatever we want to know, we can. We can do some work. We can do some Googling and we can find the answer to really any question we might have. Uh, we even see this, and this is you know a thing that's true of all people of all time, but our pride creates a problem in understanding God as well, because we think that we have to understand God because we can understand anything. We think that we are so capable of understanding very difficult truths and very complex and complicated things. And so we assume that because we are so good, we are so smart, we are so wise, we are so maybe spiritually mature, that we can understand God and therefore we have to understand every aspect of God. And going the complete opposite direction, a lot of times we want to kind of put God in this box because it's comfortable, because we are uneasy when there's an aspect of God that we don't understand or that maybe worse even bothers us. You know, how can we love and trust this God who sends people to hell? who doesn't let everyone into heaven. Can we truly love and trust him while fully believing what he says about those things? Or do we want to change those things? Or even on the flip side, do we like a God who is judgmental and who only saves the privileged few? And it gives us a sense of elitism. And so maybe we reject the idea that God will save everyone and everyone will go to heaven or most people will go to heaven. And we reject that because we aren't comfortable with a God who doesn't give us a privileged status. And ultimately what this boils down to is that we like to trust the things that we know. You know, in our day and age, we are more and more uncomfortable trusting something that we don't know, that we don't understand. You see that number pop up on your phone. If you don't recognize it, or if it says unknown, you are very hesitant to answer it because who knows what's on the other end of it? If a you know if a package label doesn't list you know all the ingredients, we're not going to trust it. That's just the worldview that we have gained over the last few decades. Is that we are constantly hesitant to trust anything that is not 100% right there, open about what it is, what it contains, what it does, and we've transferred that kind of thinking to God. In that there's things about Him that we don't know or we don't understand. And so either we will doubt him or we will say that we have the answer. We will say, oh, no, I I don't have to doubt. I don't have to be uncomfortable because here is the answer to what I'm doubting or what you're doubting. 
And so what we need to ask, though, is if that's not how we should be, if there are things about God that we can't know, then can we trust him? Can we fully trust a God who is so other than anything in the world that we can't fully understand him or know him in a way that we would rest comfortably in? And I think for all of us, the answer, whether we want to admit it or not, is a lot of times no. We are not comfortable trusting God, and so we will we will diminish him, we will change him, we will say that we have answers for everything. But when we do that, what we actually end up doing is we make a false God out of our God. Now, what do I mean by that? Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, when we think about that, we think about what we talked about at the top of the episode, about these false gods from the various religions, and how they will not worship the one true God of the Bible. And yes, but I would argue that when we are not wanting to handle the truth of God's word as he has revealed it to us. And we want to package God and bring him down and make him understandable or comfortable or worse, we want him to suit what we want from him. Then I would argue that when we this talks about we will stop listening to truth and wander into myths, we will have itching ears, meaning that we will want to be satisfied. We will have a thing that bothers us and we want to find someone or something that will soothe that discomfort we feel then I believe that these myths can also apply to God himself. And we will believe myths about God so much so that we actually can end up worshiping a false God who is just as real as Kali or Zeus or Quetzalcoatl. And now these false gods can be given real names. We can worship a God named the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. We can talk about them. We can find our discussions about them in the Bible. But just because we are using their names and assigning certain attributes to them doesn't mean that we are genuinely and truly understanding and worshiping the one true God. Now, for an example, when you talk to people, you'll find a lot of people, maybe less so today, but 10, 15, 20 years ago, you would find plenty of people who would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, I love Jesus. Within Christian circles, plenty of people will say, yeah, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, da, da, da. And now... If we aren't thinking, we'll say, oh, that's awesome. This person loves Jesus. They believe in God just like me. But if we really dig in or we really want to understand them or what we want to be careful about is that we need to ask these people, okay, what do you mean when you say you believe in God, you love Jesus, the Holy Spirit spoke to you? Who is God? Who is God as Trinity? Who is God the Father? Who is Jesus Christ? Is he part of the Godhead or is he a separate entity? How do you know the Holy Spirit spoke to you? Who is the Holy Spirit? What role does he play? How is he in sync and part of the Godhead? And the reason I ask that is that people today, and even us, we have many ideas about these three persons of the Godhead. But a lot of people that you talk to, they will use the names of the three persons, but they will mean or understand them very differently. Not just a little differently from us as though... You know, we, we're all, you know, we're all flawed human beings coming to different understandings, but genuinely they will see them as something so other that they actually don't match 
anything that we see revealed in God's word. When we're talking about God the Father, is he just this force for good where he's ever present and anyone can love and worship God because God is just that strength we have in us? Is God just this grandfatherly figure that just wants to dole out candy to his grandkids? Is he an accountant? And at the end of life, he's going to be sitting there and balancing our debt versus what we've earned in terms of goodness and say, okay, well, here's how the scales match up. Jesus Christ, is he just a good teacher? Is he our life coach? Is he our means of feeling better about ourselves? The Holy Spirit, what is even going on with him? A lot of times when you talk to people, the Holy Spirit is ultimately just a confirmation of our emotions. And so when people talk about these three beings or these three persons, we're talking about three very different ideas than what we would say is orthodox Christianity or what people have always believed throughout the last 2000 years. And I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about a perfect understanding because we are all flawed. I guarantee when I stand before God and I am hopefully able to ask questions and get to know, you know, some of these questions that I've had, there's going to be things that I'm going to be completely floored by about how much I misunderstood God as Trinity or the three persons of the Trinity. No doubt about that. All of us are going to get there because we are, again, flawed human beings trying to understand a perfect and infinite God. We're going to mess up. But what I am talking about is we need to have a biblical understanding of God where we start with what does God's word reveal and then how do I understand that? versus what do I want to say about God? What do I personally believe? What makes the most sense to me? Now, how can I find different verses to support what I'm already predisposed to want to believe as truth? And it's that second one where we run into the biggest problems. We will see it in cults because any cult out there, I don't want to say any cult, but cults that use the Bible will always have a flawed understanding of God, so much so that they are not truly and accurately representing God and are, in fact, just worshiping a false God who happens to have the name of Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, God. Whatever the cult is, they are going to have a flawed and warped understanding because they are starting with their own beliefs and what they want to believe, and they are just taking the Bible as a source of authority and saying, here's what the Bible says, here's how the Bible proves what I am saying, rather than here's what the Bible says and we know it's true. We also see this in a bigger sense in these global Christian offshoots. We have a lot of people throughout the world who are claiming the banner of Christianity. They they use the Bible every week, but what they teach, what they say is so far removed from not just orthodoxy, but from what God's word clearly reveals from Genesis to Revelation, that who they're talking about is not any real persons that have revealed themselves in the Bible. And ultimately, what we end up with, like I said, are just these gods named Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are ultimately just as real as any other god we might find in mythology. They may have a small basis in the Bible. There may be a footnote that says, hey, you know, here's kind of like how we see them in the Bible. But really, these gods that we worship are so far removed from the Bible that they are incapable of playing out God's redemptive plan as is revealed in the Bible. 
So let's just look at some quick examples of what I mean by how we can get God so wrong that we actually aren't really worshiping God anymore. Now, first we see it, like I said, in world religions. Um, on my website, I've covered a two lengthy articles, one on Muslims and what they believe and one on Mormons and what they believe. I also have an article and a recent podcast series on the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I will link all those down in the show notes. But what we see with those is that they talk about Jesus, they talk about God, and they use the Bible to support what they're saying, but the conclusions they reach and their understanding of God is just so warped that they're not truly talking about God or Jesus Christ anymore. We also see false gods in the prosperity gospel. We see that God the Father is ultimately just a vending machine. He is there to just dole out the things that our greedy hearts want. Jesus Christ is a credit card or an unlimited source of money where he died so that we could get money to put into this vending machine. Jesus Christ is basically our connection to this treasury of all the stuff that we want, our health, our wealth, our new house, our better job, our attractive spouse, whatever it is. Jesus Christ is our payment to God in order to get all these things that we want. And the Holy Spirit is just kind of there to give us an experience. He makes us feel good, or he is a a way for us to say, the Holy Spirit revealed this to me. The Holy Spirit led me to this truth. So you can't tell me it's wrong because my experience with the Holy Spirit says otherwise. Or we can go in the complete opposite direction and we look at branches of Christianity or maybe even specific churches who are just basically filled with hate and they are there just to throw down other people. Uh, you know, the most disgusting example is Westboro Baptist Church here in America, but we see this elsewhere where God the Father is just sitting there and he's just waiting to punish. That's all he does. He is sitting there, his face is constantly red, his fists are constantly balled up, and he is just waiting for someone to screw up. Jesus Christ exists purely as our get-out-of-hell-free card. This idea of, hey, do you want to go to hell? No, then ask Jesus to save you. And it's this, what's called easy believism, or this thing where, hey, if you don't want something bad, tell Jesus Christ that you want to be saved. And that's it. With no true understanding of what sin truly is or who Jesus Christ is, it's just this transactional thing where we don't want the bad stuff. So sure, I'll, I'll take anything to avoid it. Oh, Jesus Christ? Okay, sure, I'll take Jesus Christ. And then in that kind of mentality, the Holy Spirit then is just kind of around, I guess. No, he, he's too weird. He's too spiritual for the narrative crafted in that way of thinking. But... Ultimately, here is what we do, and here's why we see God so corrupted and so warped in our culture today, is that let's take God the Father. He's difficult to fully understand, and so what we tend to do is we emphasize one aspect of him, and as a result, we diminish another. So if we want to emphasize God's wrath, then we have to ignore or significantly reduce his mercy, and his grace. And we often do this as a means of superiority. Our God is angry, but we are safe. We aren't like those heathens out there. We aren't like those tax collectors. We are better. Or, flip side, we can overemphasize God's love. 
But to do that, we have to ignore his wrath and his holy judgment. We have to ignore the fact that his wrath against sin is constantly building up and that he is going to judge not just the world, but individuals for their sin, for their breaking of God's law. And that is why we need Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He took God's wrath in our place. But if all we do is overemphasize God's love, then Jesus Christ isn't as needed as it seems. Jesus is just kind of our way of helping us to feel better about ourselves. He died so that we can stop messing up. And that's like the the deepest that we'll talk about sin is just, oh, it's just how we mess up sometimes. It's how we go astray. And so God ultimately just becomes a a superstitious feel-good tool to help us soothe our emotions. Uh, We do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. He is kind of weird when we try to fully understand him. He is kind of shoved off to the side, and we don't really think about the role he plays in our lives. And so he is difficult, and so we diminish him. And we just set him to these very narrow experiences where, oh, you know, I got tingles when I was singing in church. You know, we were, you know, the the band was, you know, really bringing it and the vocalists, you know, their voices were just in harmony. It was this beautiful thing. And I was singing and I was having a really rough day and I just felt these tingles or I felt this, this warmth, you know, pour over me. And that must've been the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, he just becomes an emotional response. Uh, He can also be a confirmation of our feelings where, you know, I mean, there's literally people who have said, I was praying about whether I should divorce my wife and marry my secretary. And I just, I felt the Holy Spirit confirming that, yes, I should. And so that's what I'm going to do. Completely ignoring the fact that that is ridiculously unbiblical. That is what people will say. And so the Holy Spirit just exists to basically tell us, yes, those things you want, those things you're feeling, those are good and right. Go with them. And, and God is going to ordain your feelings and and they are they are right and no one can tell you otherwise because we say that the holy spirit give gave it to us or we'll say that he is just so weird so unknowable that he's just a force and when the bible talks about the holy spirit and when it uses the pronouns he to describe the holy spirit well really what it is is it's just a force it's the power of god it's god's spirit which is holy And so ultimately, there's only God the Father and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is just kind of like the force in Star Wars. Finally, we will do this with Jesus Christ. Once again, fully understanding him is difficult. How can he be God and man? How can he be 100% of both? How could he be born of a virgin? That's weird. What did he do on the cross? What did he come to earth for in the first place? These things can be difficult for us to either understand or accept, And so what we do is we diminish him. I mean, look at any historical heresy throughout time, and all of them are going to boil down to trying to seek understanding about Jesus Christ. They'll say he was an angel. They'll say he was a separate being altogether and that he wasn't God in three persons, but instead he is one of three individual people who are three individual, totally separate gods or especially today, we'll say, oh, he was just a good teacher. He just came to show us how to love and to be good and to do good for others and how to just live good moral lives. And so again, we will reduce him down to a thing that makes us comfortable and lets us best understand him because we can understand Jesus Christ as an angel. We can understand him as a totally separate, unique and whole God who's not 
God, but not the Father and the Holy Spirit. Or we can understand him as just a good teacher, you know, just like Buddha, just like any other good teacher that we've seen throughout history, and that's all he was. And we'll even do this with the Trinity itself. Uh, And I've gone through this at length in my episode about who is God, which is one of the uh, very first episodes I recorded. I will put the date of that episode down in the show notes if you want to dig deeper into this understanding. But when we try to understand the Trinity, we will have all these clever pictures to explain it. The Trinity is like water, and they can be steam, water, liquid, and ice. Or maybe it's like a man who is a father and a son and a, an employee. He's three things, but he's still the same person. We will have all these ways of trying to explain how God is Trinity. But the moment that we try to make God into something within his creation, we diminish him. We reduce the complexity and the uniqueness of God as Trinity into a thing that makes us more comfortable, into a thing that we can understand and hold on to and say, yes, I've got the perfect explanation. I've got the perfect understanding. And again, if you want to know why those explanations do not work, I would recommend you go listen to my episode. But what is the takeaway to the discussion at this point? What are we seeing? What, are, what am I driving at here? My biggest point is that we are very uncomfortable with the unknown, with things that we can't explain, or especially with things that we are told you cannot understand this. No matter how smart you are, no matter how hard you study, you can't understand these certain things about our God. And why? Because we like control. We want to have control over our understanding. We don't want to be told that we can't understand God as Trinity. We don't want to be told that we can't understand fully who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing right now in every moment. We are uncomfortable with the fact that God the Father and the Godhead entirely are all of the attributes of God perfectly and in harmony. And it's not, you know, he's mostly wrath with a little love or he's all love with, you know, a little bit of anger for when we really mess up because that's not how we are. We are ultimately a mess when it comes to our attributes. We can be incredibly loving and then we will overlook evil things or we can be constantly angry and just completely lack any sense of love or gentleness in our lives. But God is all those things and he's all those things perfectly. And since we can't understand that, since we can't relate to that, we will make a God in our image. And ultimately what we do is we will reduce God because it's easier for us to deal with him. And just really think about that. We want God to be something that we can deal with. Who is the God in that scenario? Who is worshiping who? Who serves who when we say or when we think or when we live as though this is true, that I don't like this, so God, I'm going to reduce you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to diminish you into something that I can deal with. We make ourselves God when we do that. But why? I mean, we need to really ask ourselves why. Logically, it makes sense. We are you know, prideful individuals. But ultimately, a God that is less than the perfect and holy God of the universe, that is going to be a very unsatisfying God. Because he can't truly offer us the salvation or he cannot truly do all the things that he has said if he is not exactly who the Bible reveals him to be. And think about what is said in Romans 1 about how people would refuse to worship God and instead they would worship animals and things like that. Why? Because these people had needs. They wanted God 
or gods capable of fulfilling those needs. And so they would have this transactional relationship. These gods were built to serve people. All false gods exist to serve us. And what's more, and what is most attractive about these gods is that we can control them. It is a, like I said, a transactional thing where if I make this sacrifice, this God will do this. If I live in this certain way, God will do this. If I am a good person, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I don't yell at my family, if I don't cheat on my wife, then God will bless me with the things that I want. How narrow and unsatisfying is that kind of a relationship where your God is not a true and living being who moment to moment is existing, but instead is just there, is just on your mind when we need something. I mean, when we really think about it, it's ridiculous that we treat God like this. It's almost insane that as we look back over the last 2000 years of church history, we often in our daily lives, we want to commit the same thing that the church has been fighting for 2000 years. I mean, this is why it's so important for us to read our Bibles well, not just to read our Bibles as though it's just something on our list that we check off, but to know how to read it and read it well and read it responsibly. And again, I'll put a note down in the show notes about my uh, two article or my two episodes where I talk about reading the Bible well and how to do it. And then I use Jeremiah 29, 11 has a very clear excuse of how we take God from who he reveals himself to be and instead just reduce him down to a gene in a bottle or a vending machine. But like I said, this is the thing that the church has been fighting against for 2000 years because we always want to diminish God. I mean, that is our default position as human beings is we want to elevate ourselves and we want gods who will serve us, who will fulfill our desires, our wants and will make our greedy hearts satisfied, at least for a moment. And so every false teaching that we see, whether it's today, whether it's throughout history, it's always a reduction of who God truly is. And it brings him down to a level that we can understand and comprehend and that we can even control. And we always see this, and especially in our own lives, and I want this to be very clear for us, is that we will see this happen when we want Christianity to be more comfortable, when we want to have a good hold on things and to feel like we've got all the answers, we will lose that battle for the truth of who God is, for the sake of God serving us. Now, how do we respond to this? Because this may seem like a very roundabout way to get to the actual topic of this, because my topic, my discussion isn't just how we make false gods, but why it's okay that we don't understand God. So why talk, spend all this time talking about all these ways that we make God a false God instead of just giving us the encouragement? And the primary reason that this episode is so focused on the ways that we diminish God is that by, by showing our lies, by showing and exposing how sinful our hearts are, I believe that it's going to help us better highlight the truth of how we respond to that, how we think about God, how we balance what we can know about God with what we can't possibly understand without that negatively impacting our spiritual walk or our love for him. So when we recognize our desire to diminish God, to take control and make him serve us, to be comfortable or like the second Timothy four, three and four said that we have those itching ears and we want to give in to myths instead of following the truth. When we see that, when we see how we turn God into a myth, then we can stop ourselves and check our hearts 
and not just find better answers, but sometimes understand that the answers that we want aren't there because they're not for us to have. And this is a very important topic because people who don't understand this are are in danger of one of two things. Either they're going to, as we've discussed, create false gods. They're going to reduce God. They're going to diminish him. They're going to put him in a nice box that they can understand and analyze and control and have all the answers to. But not everyone's going to do that. Not everyone is going to settle for a lesser God. Other people will say, I don't understand this about God, so I'm just not going to love him or trust him or even believe that he exists. Because if I can't understand it, I refuse to acknowledge that it's real. And so we struggle with very difficult things about God. And we will walk away because of certain questions or we will compromise because of certain questions. Questions like, how can God be eternal and not have a beginning? How could he have always existed with no starting point? How can he be one being, but three separate and distinct persons? If God is all-knowing, why did he make everything if he knew that we would fall into sin? Why would he create people who he knew would be going to hell, would not get eternal life? Why does God allow evil in the world in the first place? If God is all-powerful and if he could stop evil, if he could prevent evil, why doesn't he? Why does he allow things to happen to children? Why does he allow wars? Why does he allow such atrocities, many of which we've read about in history and many more that happen behind closed doors that we have no idea about? How can a good and loving God who has all the power just sit and let it happen? And... Finally, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself so that everyone can believe in him? How can we trust someone who says, believe I'm real, I'm really real, I did all these things in in history past, but no, you can't see me, I'm not going to reveal myself to you. How can we trust a God who is like that? And so like I said, we have answers for these things. There are things that God has revealed in his word that we just don't like, but there's other things that... God's word doesn't give us answers to, so we create answers so that we can best understand it, so that we are comfortable with it. But not everyone will do that. Like I said, people will doubt, and they will live in doubt so much and for so long that they'll just say, I can't understand it, I am uncomfortable, so I'm just going to walk away. And that's where this comfort with the unknown needs to be a part of our lives and our understanding, and that's why this episode is existing, is I want to encourage anyone listening that just because you don't understand a thing about God doesn't mean that that makes God less real. Or just because we don't understand a thing about God doesn't mean that that always means that, oh, if we just study harder, if we just find the right answers, we can know it about God. There are just some things we cannot understand. Instead, what we need to do is we need to remember that we worship a God of truth and we worship him in truth. So John chapter 4, verse 23, and I would encourage you if you you know, have a Bible during this, uh, read verses 21 to 26, but I'm just going to read John chapter four, verse 23, which says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. And this is the key to it is that we know that God is truth and that he has revealed what he means to reveal in his word. And we need to worship him in truth and in spirit, not in doubt, not in reducing him, but no saying, God, you are who you are. 
and I will love and I will worship you because of who you are, not because you are who I like or who I want or because I can fully understand you and I'm comfortable with you. But how do we do that? How do we worship God in truth if we don't understand? How do we marvel at him being Trinity or eternal or all-knowing or all-powerful if we can't fully understand what that means? How do we even know that these things about God are true? If, if him being Trinity, him being eternal, him being omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at all times, if we can't understand or explain how those things are true, how can we even know that they are true? Because we can't test it. We can't explain it. We can't create a simple sentence or series of sentences that fully encapsulates everything that that means. And if we can't know it's truth because we can't understand how it's true, then how can we trust God at all? How can we trust someone who is so unknowable or who has aspects of himself that we just don't understand? How do we trust that? How do we rest in who he is? How do we know that what he has said in his word is true? And here's a key understanding that I want everyone to walk away with here. And that is that trust and worship of God require faith, not understanding. I'll say it again. Worship requires faith, not understanding. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked. We need to understand what faith really means. And once again, I have a whole episode on this that I will put down in the show notes. But very quickly breaking down what faith means from a biblical sense. Faith is not just this blind thing where we just rely on our emotions and say, boy, I hope it's true. It's not a blind leap. Faith ultimately is logical. It is reasonable, but it requires a certain element of the unknown. Now, my favorite example for faith is simply talking about a chair and how every day we exercise faith in chairs because faith requires three components. It requires us to see that something exists. So we have to be able to know that a chair is there for us to sit on. You know, if we're standing in the middle of a gymnasium, we're not just going to sit and really hope that suddenly a chair has materialized. We need to see and confirm that, yes, a chair exists. But not only that, the second element of faith is that we have to know that what we're trusting is trustworthy. So we can see a chair, but if that chair is basically held together with rubber bands and bubble gum, that's not going to give us a whole lot of comfort. If we have a chair that is made entirely out of Elmer's white glue and toilet paper rolls, I'm not putting my full faith in that thing to hold me. But when you see a chair and you look at it and you say, it looks like it's got good construction, it's made of aluminum or wood or whatever, there's nothing about it that gives me pause or reason to doubt it. Then we now have two elements of faith. We see the object and we see that the object is trustworthy. The third element of faith is to actually do something about it. It's to actually rest in it. And so with a chair, again, if you say, yes, I see the chair is there. I see that it is solid construction. It will hold me. Maybe, you know, you even use your hand and push down on it to make sure that, you know, it's not just going to collapse under some weight. You can have all those things. But if you are sitting there terrified that the chair is not going to hold you, if you are coming up with all kinds of excuses not to rest in that chair, then you don't truly have faith in that chair to do what it says. And God is the same way. He has revealed that he exists. He has proven himself to be trustworthy in the past. 
And so even if we're looking, we're saying, you know, there's just, there's aspects of this chair I don't understand. There's things that I can't see or fully know with God, even though there's things that we may doubt, that we may struggle with. We know that God has proven himself so much in every other area of things that we can know that even though we don't understand, even though we have some questions and doubts, we know that we can rest in him because he's proven himself to be trustworthy in the past. And that's why I say we worship God, not because we fully understand him, but because we have faith based on our past, based on our understanding that he is who he says he is, and he is worthy of that worship. So all that being said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to call this an episode. I have a bit more notes, but I think that this topic would actually be better split into two. So having talked about at this point, how we make false gods out of God because we want to understand him, because we want to put him in a box. We've talked about how our hearts are sinful and how our hearts are the problem in how all these you know false religions about God come out, why we as followers of Jesus Christ who have been redeemed by his blood will still compromise the beauty and majesty of God. And we've talked about the alternative and we've talked about the distinguishing between faith and understanding and how we can still worship God because he's proven who he is. I'm going to call this there. And in my next episode, I would like to just briefly talk about three reasons or three problems that come up when it comes to us trusting God, despite those unknowable things, and then kind of wrap up this discussion with hopefully some comforting thoughts or comforting words regarding what we can know and what we can't know. So as you're leaving this episode and kind of thinking about the things we've discussed, remember that trusting in your God, worshiping him, loving him, it does not require you to fully understand him. It only requires that you have faith in who he's proven himself to be time and time again in your life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.